Sick Boy Wolfgang Productions presents The Offering with Jerry Horror. A deep dive into the history of film and its filmmakers. Mostly horror, always genre. Monster lovers, young and old, living and dead. You can now make it Halloween all year round. The Gooligans are dying for you to check out their creepy comedy horror show now on their YouTube channel. Have you been ravenous for programs that are geared more towards your sick sensibility? Have you been fiending for horror and comedy so fun that it makes you want to scream? Well, dig no further. Full episodes of the Gooligans miniseries are available for you to sink your teeth into. And if you don't know about the Gooligans, it's like the monkeys meets the monsters meets Pee-wee's Playhouse. These fun party monsters exist purely to bring on the death of your life-sucking normal everyday TV show. The Gooligans follows the adventures of Boris Stein, the monstrous Frankenstein construct, Wolfgang W. Wolfgang, the likable lycanthrope, and Void, king of the slow zombies, joined by a cadre of your favorite cult cretins, including vampires, sea creatures, luchadors, and sexy go-go girls. Check out the full episodes of their miniseries now on the Gooligans YouTube channel, and have a scary good time. Welcome to The Offering with Jerry Hara, the show where we can have a quiet and frank discussion as adults about the things that matter to me, or at least that I think matter to me. Please take a moment to subscribe to our show wherever you get fine podcasts, and hey, stay up to date on future episodes. This week on The Offering, we're covering H2O Halloween 20 Years Later. Made in 1998, starring Jamie Lee Curtis. Ladies and gentlemen, and friends beyond the binary, it's your old pal Jerry Hara, and welcome to another exciting episode of The Offering. Hi, how you doing? Woo! Dear God, five stars, five stars, five stars. Got another five-star review, folks. Send your reviews in, Apple, Spotify, YouTube, wherever. Wherever you want to send those in. Five-star review from True Horror with Wolf. Jerry does a fantastic job at reviewing horror. I am a new listener and enjoy Jerry's discussion if I know what you did last summer. His content kept me very engaged. Looking forward to his future podcasts. Highly recommended, Kim the Mummy from True Horror with Wolf and the Mummy. I'm assuming that's a podcast. I mean, it's not somebody's address. Right? This doesn't make any sense. Fantastic, though. Guys, thank you so much, Kim. That's very kind of you. I will check out your podcast as soon as possible, as soon as we get the power back. So we're just surrounded by candles right now. I'm back in my bullshit. You know what we're doing. This week, we're talking about H2O Halloween 20 years later. We'll get into that in a second. It's been a harrowing week of news, as usual. Try to keep it topical and timely. Here we go, folks. Warner Brothers has announced that they are going to be using an AI-generated algorithm to start producing their upcoming slate of films. This will go into effect into the first quarter of 2022. Essentially, this algorithm tells them what's trending and what's working and what is in demand and what is going to financially make them the most money. Normally, when you decided what projects were made, it was a couple of different executives, a whole board generally, and it would get floated around and gone through many channels. Well, they think that's a whole waste of time. Why involve humans? This is the beginning of Skynet. Holy shit, it's terrifying. So they're going to be making all of these upcoming films via AI-generated decisions, which I think is insane. But at the same time, a part of me kind of understands this is the next evolution and where we're going with getting films made. It's very hard now. I've said this since the beginning of this show. 
I've used this as my soapbox to talk about intellectual um, properties and how they've just taken over everything. It's very hard. If you go on YouTube, check out my review of Malignant. It was nice to see a film by James Wan Malignant that was not a sequel. It was just something wholly original. Love it or hate it, it's a very divisive film, but that's okay. Back in the day when movies came out, like Rosemary's Baby or The Exorcist, they were very divisive films. They weren't instant classics. There were less things to go see. You know, there weren't as many movies. And generally, people went to the movies in droves more so during that time period, especially in the 1970s, late 60s. There was nothing else to do. With that being said, the future of cinema is looking to be generated by, you know, artificial intelligence, which is kind of a scary thing. But at the same time, I kind of saw this coming. It's just one of those things where a lot of these people at the studios, they're counting beans, they're counting money, what's making money, what property. And, and, and this is what's crazy. People don't even know this, but a lot of there's whole branches of studios and all they do is they fish through every intellectual property they own and for instance you know like warner brothers what do we got we got grape ape let's make grape ape into a movie we got huckleberry hound that'd be a great television show whatever we have you got plastic man oh my god let's turn plastic man oh if you want to read a bonkers uh screenplay the wachowskis uh the wachowski sisters they wrote a Plastic Man screenplay that was like kind of this weird ecologically friendly film that was to star Jim Carrey. This was uh, before they did The Matrix. This was a spec script they wrote. Look up this script. It's it's by the Wachowski sisters. It's Plastic Man. It is bonkers. If you want something, if you're going to get whacked out and you're looking for something to read, that doesn't make sense, though. Would you get drunk or stoned and then you're like, oh, I'm going to read a take. Uh, this is depressing, but yeah, it's kind of a wacky screenplay. Look, the future's here, folks, and there's no reason to fight it. Should you be surprised when a Terminator, a T-800, writes your new sequel to Terminator films? Just saying, because now Warner Brothers also owns that intellectual property, which is the Terminator. So just think about that for a minute. Does art ape what's going on in the real world? Does Does the real world ape? No, I don't know. Does it? It doesn't even make any sense anymore. Does the real world ape what's going on in art? I, I'm so confused. I don't know what's going on anymore. But what I know is the people that own the freaking Terminator franchise are going to have AI deciding what film should be made next. Now, you should get suspicious if the AI is like, I think it would be a good idea to make another Terminator film. You know, like that's the, that's the AI's first pick. <laughs> I, I like the Skynet. I like how they stick up for themselves against the humans. Yeah, when that happens, believe me, we're all going to be in really deep shit. So keyboard warriors, people who are mad at their iPhones when they read these things, it's okay. Because let me tell you, if it doesn't work, if that AI doesn't come up with some money generating hits, they're going to be throwing that thing right in the garbage and going back to the old fashioned way, folks. That's right. That was that was the whole thing with Skyfall. Just 007 Skyfall. That, hey, James Bond, you're an antique. You don't belong in this world. You're antiquated. And in the end, how does he get the bad guy? Spoiler alert, he uses a fucking knife. And that's it, folks. That's, that's you know, hey, when technology collapses all around you, you better learn how to hunt and fish. If you're James Bond and and you don't have intelligence, you don't have weapons, you better know how to use a knife because that's what it's coming down to, folks. And speaking of using knives, not only did James Bond use a knife, another friendly neighborhood slasher who also used a knife, Michael Myers, which brings us this week to our film, H2O Halloween 20 Years Later, 1998, starring Jamie Lee Curtis and to a lesser extent, more haircut than actual performer, Josh Hartnett. Twenty years later, twenty years later, 1978 John Carpenter's seminal modern 
horror classic. Why is it a horror classic? Just for review, kids. The reason it's a classic is because it's the first time that something spooky is going on really in uh, suburbia. These are not the Hammer horror films. There's no big castles. You know, there's no monsters that are living in a moat. This is suburbia. It's 20 years later. What's the significance of that? Significance is everybody wanted to make some money. (laughs) That's the... uh, Right away, I'm going to give you the rub. Let me give you the rub real quickly before we get to my whole spiel. The rub is that director Steve Miner of this film, who actually did the Friday the 13th Part 2 and 3, some of my favorite Fridays, I love 2. 2 is great. Go back. Go watch Friday the 13th Part 2. It's such a fantastic film. Friday the 13th Part 3D, also another one of my favorites. Halloween H2O, not so much. This film was largely put together. Steve Miner was directing Forever Young with noted, well, I guess noted, well, I don't even want to get into it, noted person of interest, Mel Gibson and Jamie Lee Curtis. They were working on a film with Steve Miner. And uh, the germ of this idea is quite interesting. We'll get to that in a minute, but I want to get to the more controversial thing. John Carpenter says, I will direct this film but I want $10 million. Why? And and it wasn't just him. This money probably would have gone to Deborah Hill, his partner and uh, ex-girlfriend, ex-wife. I don't know. I don't keep track of it. See, things like that are, I don't care about Wes Craven's, you know, second wife and stuff like that. I know we're talking about John Carpenter. I didn't just, I didn't just have a stroke folks, but I'm just saying, I don't, I don't like getting into that stuff. You know, I don't, I don't think there's anything interesting and that's his private life. It's none of my business. It's none of your business. Stay out of Wes Craven's. Stay out of Wes Craven's business. John Carpenter says uh, to Miramax, "I want ten million dollars to direct Halloween H 20 They're like, "No, <laughs> no, 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 and no." So right off the bat, we were not going to get the great John Carpenter back, which means by proxy, except until 2018's Halloween, this new trilogy that we got going on, he uh. He'll do the music. He'll do the music. You know, when his son, Cody Carpenter, and, and those the Halloween 2018 soundtrack bangs, man. That is a banger right there. I'm excited for the new film. I heard the first two tracks. They sound good, too. So I think that I'm, I'm a little bit out of sorts here, but I'm going to just give you this the best way I know how. This film states trauma is real. A lot of times with these horror films... People just bounce back into their lives and, well, I'm doing it one day at a time and drinking a cup of coffee with both hands, (laughs) you know, in a big, obnoxious, fluffy robe. Trauma is real. What would the effects be on on Laurie Strode after surviving everything that happened in Halloween? Because uh, just remember, folks, uh, I I think we've got some of the rules from Halloween, too, but not everything, you know, so we're, we're kind of like just pretending that four, five, and six didn't happen. Oh, let's go here for a second, because it's important that I explain to you what the state of the franchise was. So the last film that they had made, which is 95, I believe, The Curse of Michael Myers, that film, okay, didn't perform as to what they wanted. You know the whole history behind that. It's a troubled film, Halloween 666. There's the producer's cut. I, I personally... Like, I like the producer's cut. I like the theatrical cut. I wish someone could tastefully sync the both of them together and make that work. I know it's probably out there. You go to a horror convention. Some guy has this. They've got the hybrid cut, you know? Hybrid theory. So the film with Paul Rudd, which I love Curse of Michael Myers. I wish we were doing that, but we're not. We're doing the sequel to that. Well, sort of. It didn't perform the way they thought it was. And at that point, with all the the contention that the Weinstein brothers, the Akkads, and everybody that was involved with Halloween 6, it was a disaster. And uh, they didn't really want to do that again. So there was going to have to be some different avenues and ways that they were going to make this new movie. Daniel Farrens, who had written Halloween Superfan, He's done the documentaries, Camp Crystal Lake Memories. 
Never Sleep Again. He's great. He does some great stuff. He originally, you know, he, he's just a, a good dude, and he's a Halloween super fan, and he was a young man who kind of got drafted into the whole world of Hollywood because he understood and appreciated and loved this franchise. He even had, like, schematics of he and, and like, a lore book of everything that had happened. And, again, we're talking, like, the early 90s, so for somebody to do that, that was very new. This is, like, I'm sure that there's departments within studios that just do lore that are like, oh, you can't do that because blah, 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 blah. Daniel Farrance basically didn't want to work on another one. was kind of happy not to. He had a screenplay, though, that people kind of wanted. Well, at least the Weinsteins wanted it. And this has been covered briefly in Taking Shape 2. It's kind of this two faces of evil where you were going to get Michael Myers and then some other killer. Because, again, now we're, we're, we're going to be entering the time of Scream. So by the time they got to the point of wanting to make another Halloween Scream, it hit. And they were like, oh, another killer. That's the great idea. Farron's was happy because they, they didn't want to go with that. But initially, that Two Faces of Evil script, which I believe in the Two Faces of Evil script... There's no Loomis, okay? So we've we've kind of dropped that thread. And it's not Laurie. It has not, it's not Jamie. It has nothing to do with the mainline franchise. It takes place mostly at a college, a little bit at an asylum, and it's based on a new character that's kind of the new Laurie. We'll we'll get into that later. Essentially, what happens is they want to bring it direct to video. They had done this with the Hellraiser franchise. And they're like, look. This thing is out of gas, okay? We're not making the old ducats the way we used to. Time for the Weinsteins to pull one of their infamous jobs and say, hey, we make this shit for under $5 million. Just put it out on direct-to-video. It'll make money. It's a brand, right? It's an intellectual property that we can milk. Cods didn't like that. So, where does that bring us? Well, brings us to Michael Myers about to go to direct-to-video. It's not looking too good. Wouldn't you know it, though, there was a germ of a story. They couldn't figure out what to do. And they went to their old buddy, who you might remember from previous episodes, Kevin Williamson, who at that point was deep, deep into Dawson's Creek and really couldn't commit to anything else because of his commitment to that show. This being said, Kevin Williamson said, look, I probably owe so much to the Weinsteins. So he kind of writes a treatment, puts together a, a treatment, and they like it. And the first thing that they like about this treatment is it's got the Jamie Lee Curtis character, Laurie Strode, in it. So the Weinsteins say, hey, you know, I wonder if we could, uh, maybe we could get, uh, you know, get Jamie Lee back. Jamie Lee talks to Steve Miner. Jamie Lee is like, you know what? It's been 20 years. I've done a lot of different pictures. My career has moved in all kinds of different ways. She never tried to escape from it, but, you know, she went on to do different projects, even though she's probably one of the greatest scream queens of all time. I think part of it was, hey, can I get in on the producing action and, you know, do something that I'm going to be happy with? John Carpenter wanted his $10 million. Jamie Lee just wanted, if she was going to do this movie, I want some back-end reciprocation. And I think that's fine. I think whenever you can leverage yourself, these studios make a lot of money. These corporations that make these films make money. If you can leverage yourself and make a couple of bucks, you should always do that. Dawson's. Dawson's Creek. Forever Young Connections. Dear God. Going back to Forever Young, Jamie Lee is working with Steve Miner. They're shooting that movie with famed crazy person, Mel Gibson. <laughs> and uh, they, she says, hey, look, you know, you've done. Hey, Steve, you've done horror movies. Why don't you come direct this film? Uh, they couldn't get the script together. They just couldn't. For whatever reason, Kevin Williamson had wrote this outline and essentially Robert Zappia helped it with the story to transcribe it into a fleshed-out screenplay with Matt Greenberg. So I think the hopes of having Kevin Williamson write this movie were dashed, 
And I think it was kind of one of those things where they just asked for an idea. You know, they were like, hey, you're good with this stuff. How about you give us an idea? So I think that that was like a gimme. Ostensibly, we're going to bring back Jamie Lee Curtis. So we're bringing back Laurie Strode. Early on in the initial script, there's this whole part where Jamie Lee Curtis has her students doing like, they're doing reports, but they're doing like verbal reports. So one of the kids is talking about this Laurie Strode character who disappeared. And in this kid's monologue, what he mentions is that she had had a daughter, which would have been Jamie Lloyd. And this is referencing the Jamie Lloyd thing, you know, the part that was played by Daniel Harris. Basically, he's referencing, he's saying, like, she got killed by Michael Myers and then Laurie Strode died in a car accident. So this was one point of contention for Steve Miner. He's like, I don't want this in the film. And they came very close to shooting it. And he's like, no, he's like, we have to wipe out the the connective tissue of four, five and six. Now, I think had that been in there, it probably would have been much more exciting for the fans like me, you know, like the the Halloween super fans. Oh, boy. Oh, wow. See, oh, my God. They mentioned Jamie Lloyd. Oh, so, yeah, but that didn't happen. So (laughs) going to move forward, folks. No connective tissue to four, five and six. We're starting over completely new. Let's get into this movie. Let's get into it. It's 1998 in a remote California town at a secluded private school. We could have a Halloween party, just the four of us. We could have a roaming orgy. I love the way this man thinks. No booze, no drugs, no kidding. One teacher is living in fear. I'm not who you think I am. I changed my name when I went into hiding. That's terrible. Pick up your clothes. My brother killed my sister. <laughs> How'd he do that? With a really big kitchen knife. That's enough. I can't take it, Mom. He's dead. It's been 20 years. What's he waiting for, huh? Don't you think he would have shown up by now? No. This is a sick joke. <laughs> now. Come on! The face of good and the face of evil will meet one last time. But this time, it's going to be a fight to the finish. This summer, Terror won't be taking a vacation. Halloween H2O. It's Halloween. I guess everyone is entitled to one good scare. I've had my share. On October 29th, 1998, Michael Myers burglarizes Dr. Sam Loomis's retirement house in Langdon, Illinois. Uh, Loomis's former colleague, Marion Chambers, who took care of Dr. Loomis until he died. Marion Chambers, played by Nancy Stevens, who was the original nurse from the first Halloween. Uh, She has the rabbit in red matches that she uh, gives to the old Dr. Loomis. She's taken care of Dr. Loomis. He passed away because in real life, Donald Pleasance had passed away. Uh, They got a guy who was a sound-alike to do uh, an opening monologue, and it works. It's very chilling with the music that was created for that that piece. It, It was just very interesting, and it was kind of nice. It was like a way of paying homage to him, and there were various different photos. We're going to get more to that in a second about Loomis. They discover, because the house has been burglarized, that the file on Laurie Strode, who has been presumed dead in an automobile accident, is missing. Basically, Michael Myers has broken into this house to find some dirt and find out where the hell Laurie Strode is. So, I mean, like, first off, I just want to say, because this, this movie's ridiculous. I mean, you know what? He drives a car. But now he's doing, like, reconnaissance. Like, he's breaking into, like, I mean, he, I guess he doesn't know. Uh, he, he's breaking into Dr. Samuel Loomis's 
retirement house, who was voiced by Tom Kane. That's the guy who did the voiceover. Very interesting. Nurse Marion Chambers. There's some kids out in the street, teenage neighbors, played by Brandon Williams and Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Because at that point, believe it or not, fun fact, folks, Joseph Gordon-Levitt was originally supposed to play the Josh Hartnett part. But due to contractual obligations, he couldn't, but still wanted to be a part of it because Joe Gore-Levitt is a big fan of Halloween. And he was like, hey, I want to be in Halloween. I can't do the whole film, but here's, here's a little something. I'm going to show up. He gets murdered with a hockey skate, like an ice skate to the head. And that's a very Friday the 13th kill. Like, that's not, it's not, that's not a very Michael Myers kill. I don't know. Because again, for, don't forget we're still in 1998. He kills Nurse Marion. He kills Jimmy. Uh, I believe he kills Tony. Who cares? Who, you're investigating the house. What, what does it matter? This is, you know, again. So we don't have Loomis in this film. This is our first film with no Dr. Samuel Loomis. So initially, because the studio, I fucking hate Miramax. I really do. I hate the fucking Weinsteins. I, not just because of the shitty things, and I'm sure Bob might be not a bad guy, but his brother's a fucking monster. And it's hard because we've been talking about all of these films in the canon from that era, you know? So we have to bring up the fucking Weinsteins. Okay, I'm going to get the anger out of my system, folks. I'm sorry. So they basically said, hey, why don't we get a new Loomis? And initially, I kind of liked this pick. The new Loomis was just going to be a private investigator played by Robert Forrester. Because at that time, he had done the Quentin Tarantino film, Jackie Brown. So they were in talks with Forrester to come in as this private detective who was, I guess he was going to be tied in some way to investigating this whole Michael Myers thing. That would have been interesting. Robert Forrester from Rochester, New York. Cool guy. New York native. Great actor. Did you see him in the Breaking Bad? Did you see him in the Better Call Saul? Fantastic. Robert Forrester. All-star. Not with us. R.I.P. So they couldn't get Robert Forrester. So the other Samuel Loomis, well, the new Samuel Loomis, they said, hey, let's get this guy as a detective and we'll get... Charles Dutton, that's right, actor, character actor from everything, but Charles Dutton most famously was in the show Rock. He would have been a good choice, an, another good choice. Okay, they, they couldn't get Charles Dutton. <laughs> Whatever he was doing, he had decided to do a bunch of stuff on Broadway, and he was committed for so many shows and just couldn't do it. But we got LL Cool J, and LL Cool J was not really that great of an actor at this point. He was just kind of really starting to wade his toes into the acting game. But it, uh, ladies love Cool James, and he's very charismatic. Another New York guy. He's really from Long Island, but we'll just say Farmers Boulevard in Queens. Whatever. So LL puts in his contract, hey, I'm going to be in this film, but I cannot die. So the Weinsteins are like, oh, the, the kids, they love the LL. We Okay, fine, you're not going to die. And don't forget, the Akkads, Mustafa Akkad, later his son, Malik. But Mustafa basically said, one thing we can never do is kill Michael Myers. Because essentially, we're killing the Golden Goose. And... You know what? I kind of, <laughs> as a businessman myself, I'm something of a businessman. As a businessman myself, I kind of get that. Like, you don't want to kill the golden goose. So LL can't die. Michael Myers can't die. I, I want you to, to keep that in your mind. This movie is a fucking debacle, okay? And one of the biggest debacles is the mask. Oh, my effing God. The main mask they ended up using was uh, Stan Winston's design. It's probably the creepiest out of them all. I, I kind of like it. I'm partial to it. I'm entitled to an opinion. Okay, folks? I like the Stan Winston mask. I didn't like, from KNB, his mask was shitty. I'm sorry. And I love him, and I love KNB effects, but it didn't work for me. So they got four different masks in this movie, and uh, they, they did a lot of quick cuts with Myers. So if you look around, you're going to see this mask change many times. And that's one of the reasons this movie is a mess. 
they had the good sense. And of course, almost 40 years later, they're doing Halloween 2018. They knew. And that was like a big deal. They had spoke to producer Ryan Turk. He was talking about it. He was saying that you can't screw up the mask. You can you can do a lot of things, but you can't screw up the mask. And I, I agree with that. Four different masks used for this movie. Can you spot them all? Can you see them all change? But wait, it gets worse, folks. Not only are there different masks changing from scene to scene because they had shot 90% of the Michael Myers stuff. They shot all that action stuff right up front. And the dailies come back to the Weinsteins. This is shit. We got to reshoot this. This is, There's no way. We, we can't commit to this. This is not how our Michael Myers is going to look. So in certain scenes, they couldn't reshoot them just because of time, practicality. So what did they do? They used some very early CGI to, to further enhance the Michael Myers visage. It looks terrible. It wasn't as noticeable when I saw this film in theaters. You're not aware of it. You're just at this point, it had been like three years since the last installment. So we were all just happy to be in the theater watching another Halloween. Oh boy, Halloween is my favorite. Um, yeah, we're just happy to be there. You don't realize it, but now with Blu-ray, ooh, 4K, ooh, yeah, you can see that crappy mask. And man, does it look crappy. And it's changing. It's changing back and forth. It's doing things. But the late great Stan Winston, I think, provided the best one. It's the one that kind of has the poofy hair. In some weird way, the, the look for Michael Myers in this film kind of looks like a character from Nightmare Before Christmas that escaped. It's just a very different look. You know, you still got the coveralls, you got the mask, you got the whole thing, but it's just something's off about it. I know that they wanted this Michael Myers to look like Nick Castle and more of his, you know, body shape. It is 20 years later, kind of a lanky, string beanie guy. I don't know. Just saying, look, look, I'm just saying maybe Michael Myers has a little bit of a dad bod. You know, it's, it's been 20 years. What's he been doing? Where has he been? He's been at the asylum. What's he doing? He's definitely not doing sit-ups. Like, oh, no, we'll let you out in a second, Michael. Just stop fin it's when you're done doing your lunges. Come on. Fuck out of here. Ridiculous bullshit. We'll be right back with more of The Offering with Jerry Horror. Nosebest Candles is a soy wax candle company owned by two Long Island natives turned Manhattanites. They hand pour small batches of cheeky candles that inspire the euphoric feeling of synesthesia. Each candle pairs an enchanting dual fragrance with a curated Spotify playlist to help you set your mood at home. Not to mention, the names of these candles are a conversation starter themselves. Best sellers include Bitch Goddess, Mountain Daddy, and Send Nudes. Their 2021 limited edition Halloween candle is named OMG I'm Dead. That's my favorite. The perfect scent to burn while enjoying your favorite horror podcast. Enjoy 10% off your candle haul this fall using the code JerryHara10. You can shop on NoseBestCandles.com. Again, 10% off any purchases using JerryHara10. You're listening to The Offering with Jerry Hara. Got a question or a story you want to share with me? It might be featured in a future episode. Email me at jerryhara at gmail.com or hit me up on Twitter at jerryhara. I'm also on Instagram. You can find me there at jerryhara. Rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts and you might find your review in an upcoming episode. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to The Offering. Now back to the show. In Summer Glen, California, Lori is having faked her death to avoid Michael. She lives under an assumed name as Carrie Tate, having a career as the headmistress of Hillcrest Academy, a private boarding school. Lori is in a relationship with Hillcrest guidance counselor, Will Brennan, played by the wonderful son of Alan Arkin, Adam Arkin, fantastic actor, one of my favorites. However, he's really, and let me tell you something, Adam Arkin, he, his back hurt because he's carrying this fucking film, okay? He's, he's doing the most. 
He's doing the most. He has a lot of thankless, shitty lines, like about nipples being pierced, and he does the best he can do with the script. And this script, oh boy, it is not a Kevin Williamson script, but they made sure to try and, they they weren't, okay, look, it's the same, it's the same studio, okay? They tried to juice this film up. This is very much, and, and not completely, but, the, again, we talk about the influence of Scream. It's two years removed. In 96, we had gotten Scream. 97, we get Scream too. So this is 98. So like we're barely removed like a year from, from both films. So the influence is there. And if you can't get Kevin Williamson to write your script, find some guys that can imitate his style. And it's fine because... Uh, well, we'll get into the whole faculty thing. So, yeah, there's a bunch of kids. They're at a private academy. It is what it is. It's, it's ridiculous. I mean, I get it. It's a, it's a good setting. Everybody's going away for a class trip. Her son, who's played by Josh Hartnett. Introducing Josh Hartnett. His girlfriend, Molly Cartwell, played by Michelle Williams. Uh, classmates, Charlie Devereaux. Adam Han Bird, who was Little Man Tate. And Sarah Winthrop, Jody Lynn O'Keefe, and I got to tell you something, Jody Lynn O'Keefe, wow, she has aged fantastically. What a beautiful woman. Uh, she really enjoyed doing this. Now, I, I just saw an interview with her recently, and I was like, wow, was like, she's beautiful. Is that an angel? Yeah, so the kids at the school are going to this trip in Yosemite, but uh, John, the girlfriend, Charlie and Sarah are going to stay behind because they want to have a Halloween party in the school basement. You know what? Fine. Fucking fine. When you've been a fan of a franchise, and this is the seventh film in a franchise, fine. Do, do whatever you want. You know, some people, they take this stuff seriously, and I understand that's part of fandom, but you get to a point where it's like, if it's a decent, plausible setup, I'm like, all right, as long as there's logic and it makes sense, whatever. So later that night, Lori reveals her true identity to Will and realizing that Michael has most likely returned to kill her upon realizing that John is the same age she was dun, 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 from the murders in 1978. Michael, meanwhile, arrives with a stolen old panel truck. Whatever, man. You know, it's it looks like something that uh, Marion Cobretti Stallone would have drove in Cobra. So he brings the old <laughs> he brings the old panel truck to Hillcrest. He kills Charlie and Sarah. John and Molly are chased by Michael through the school grounds. Will and Lori have to save John and Molly. Yeah, no, I'm not going to give you a recap of the plot because it's it really is just kind of ridiculous at this point. I have to get back to famed not much more than a haircut, Josh Hartnett. Now. This was Josh Hartnett's first film, and the way old studio systems used to work was they would have a crop of stars, and they were going to be like, some people were like day players, and they, they had like roles, you know, they were just walk-ons, but they had their, their uh, stable of stars, so to speak. So Miramax was always trying to keep this like an old studio system, much like Canon Pictures, have this stable of stars. So Joseph Gordon-Levitt was definitely in that, like, okay, we like this kid. We're going to keep him around. They wanted him for this part. They wanted him uh, as John. Didn't work out. I told you he's in the beginning. So they love Josh Hartnett, okay? And he gets the part in Halloween. And literally, like, seven or eight days after filming this H2O, they're working on the faculty with Robert Rodriguez. And they're like... We've got this kid. He's on the Halloween film. So basically when he had a break from filming, he went auditioned for Robert Rodriguez. And then the filming for the faculty was pretty much going to overlap for him. So you have a guy who had never been in a movie. Boom. He's in like, you know, Halloween, which is a huge franchise. And he's in the faculty with Robert Rodriguez, one of the hottest directors at that time. So it's kind of like going zero to 60. As old Uncle Jerry says, all gas, no brakes. Josh Hartnett, hottest man. Miramax is stable. Stable of stars. 
was going to say sweaty stable. That's gross. Let's not go there. Hey, John Ottman. John Ottman did the score for this film. It's terrible. It's an absolutely terrible score, except for that first piece that he does where it is the Halloween theme with the orchestral going through it. That's where Dr. Loomis's voice is uh, over that. That works. That totally works. The rest of the score, it's like a fantasy movie. And you can find bits and pieces of it. Go on YouTube. Hey, watch the Gooligans while you're there. Don't forget, they have a show on YouTube. You can listen to the John Ottman score. It's very big, fantastical, and like an action movie, and just does not fit because I think we're conditioned. You know, John Carpenter, the Alan Howarth stuff, there's a certain cadence and sound design that we're used to with the synthesizer. And I see what he was going for, but it did not. It did not work for this film whatsoever. So the studio sees the first cut of the film with the John Ottman score. Absolutely fucking not. We Think of all the problems we've got. This movie had so many problems. And they're like, uh-oh, what do we do? This score sucks. And like they had a couple of early screenings just to the rough cut. And everybody said, like, it was kind of a unanimous thing. Like, this, the score doesn't work. Like, we're so used to that John Carpenter, Alan Howarth type sound. Where is it? So, obviously, because they didn't give John Carpenter his $10 million, they ain't getting his ass. And Alan Howarth was actually working on something else at that point in time. So, who did they get? The guy who made all the music for Scream, Marco Beltrami. So Marco Beltrami comes in and he obviously he's very influenced by Carpenter. You know, anybody of of his age and and you know his score work. So he's able to kind of inject as much as he can and changes it. Now, this is a crazy story. They literally had like four days, five days to do this whole thing. So they flew Marco Beltrami um, into New York to cut the picture uh, with the new music, like whatever he could add, whatever he could get done in this like five day period, they basically had him. He he was just he was pretty much sleeping at the studio. He got massages. All the food was ordered there. He was living in the studio for like five days in order to kind of course correct the soundtrack. To be perfectly honest with you, for what he did in five days, not bad. It actually turned in a pretty admirable score. He saved what he could from Ottman's pieces. Like, he's like, okay, this works. We're going to throw this out and put this in. But look, you just, you can't do it. You, you can't. It just doesn't work. I'm sorry. Look, I'm, I'm, I'm done. I'm done, all right? Michael Myers cannot die. Akkad is not happy with the ending of this film. Doesn't like it. Not a fan. You can't kill Michael Myers. What do you do? Why are you not? Why are you trying to kill? He is the golden goose. We do not kill Michael Myers. I mean, he's got a point. Jamie Lee Curtis says, "I won't do the picture unless you kill him," because that was one thing that Williamson came up early on with the treatment was, "Oh, by the way, uh, we're gonna kill Michael Myers in this movie." Now. Let me get to that because this is my favorite part of the whole movie. I was in the theater. Let me kind of set you up for this. Make a uh, a little bit more sense. The whole last half hour of this movie, last 25 minutes, turn into an action picture. Um, The music is pumping. You've got Jamie Lee Curtis. You've got Michael Myers. The last 25 minutes of this movie, everybody just disappears. <laughs> and it's it's literally just this showdown. It's a rematch. It's Freddy versus Jason. You know, it's the rumble in the jungle. It's, it's the big rematch we've all wanted. This is what the film has built to. So they're chasing each other around. They're shooting each other. They're stabbing. Basically, she's fighting Michael Myers. And she pushes him over a balcony. And she prepares to stab him again. But Ronnie, LL Cool J, who survived the shooting, convinces her to stop. The authorities arrive at the scene and load Michael Myers into a coroner's van. But Lori, knowing that Michael is still alive, steals the van to kill him for good. Michael awakens, attacks Lori, 
who stops, causing Michael to fly through the windshield. Lori drives the van into Michael, pinning him between the van and the tree, and she proceeds to drive off the road down a steep hill. Lori tumbles out of the vehicle, and then Michael is pinned completely. Michael reaches out to Lori, and they almost touch hands. It's almost a sweet moment between brother and sister. I'm dying. I tried murdering you, like, all these times, but I'm dying right now. And they almost touch hands, but right before she does that, she pulls out a fire axe and cuts his fucking head off. And let me tell you, brother... That fucking audience popped like crazy. Even me. I was in the theater opening night and I was like, yeah! like holy shit this whole movie is mediocre this movie has one too many and by one too many i mean one creed song and i yeah, whatever uh i was not, i'm sorry folks they had their moments and i respect them i'm just not a creed fan long story short yeah i don't yeah i'm not even gonna get involved with that uh, everybody was on their feet people were cheering because it was like holy shit <laughs> he just killed michael myers and Hey, look, it's one of those things where this movie needed a big payoff. And Kevin Williamson said, what do they not do in the first Halloween? It's a pretty good question. Michael Myers gets shot six times, falls onto the ground, and then he disappears. They didn't give you a conclusive finish. No more edging. No more shenanigans. We're getting right to it. We're killing Michael Myers. Fuck you. We're hardcore. This is 1998. And I gotta say, it's incredible. If you do not regard what happens after this and you take that away, remember I told you this is a story of trauma. Most people don't ever get to confront the person that victimizes them. This is pretty much playing out in a very operatic, grand scale. But we know now PTSD, trauma, all these things are real. So being able to confront the person who has terrorized you. Because in this film, you see Jamie Lee Curtis is taking pills. She's drinking. But that's okay. That's normal. You know, you have two different versions of this. Because this is 98 I do believe there's a little bit of influence from Terminator 2 Judgment Day. We see the way that Linda Hamilton, Sarah Connor, deals with all the trauma that occurs in the 84 movie. And that's brilliant. And I do feel this very much falls into that same category. This is a badass moment, man. Um, and it's kind of the biggest payoff that you could ever get for our Haddonfield heroine, Jamie Lee Curtis. How was this film received? You're going to be shocked, folks, but this film cost $17 million to produce and it returned $55 million in domestic box office. I had a huge opening weekend. They, they said uh, it's probably about $16 million that weekend and then $24 million from Friday to Wednesday. So this film was, was whew, it was big. It did very well. It's still, okay. So we're looking back now because 1998, we're, we're past the 20 years later because in 2018, that was that was H4O. You know, we're, we're bringing it back again. The thing that we talk about is when you look back and you have the, the 2020 vision, obviously, it's easier to say, hey, this didn't work, so now this time let's do that. And, and I think Halloween 2018 is a fantastic movie. Uh, I, I love that film, and I'm so excited to see Halloween Kills. So, uh, on Rotten Tomatoes, this film has an approval rating of 52%, the average Metacritic rating of 5.6 out of 10. Look, I, I don't think this is a horrible movie. In the whole scheme of things in the franchise, 
it's a two out of five star movie. It's not the worst. The worst film in the series is Halloween 5, The Revenge of Michael Myers. It's just not very good. There were some cuts that needed to happen with this film. Um, very interesting. Now, at this point, Miramax was obviously in a deal with Buena Vista, which is Disney. There were certain things that they made them kind of alter in the theatrical and we really don't know what that was, but there were certain things that Disney just didn't jive with in the initial cut of this film. So, and I don't remember because again, this is 1998 when I saw it in theaters, when they released the film and this came out in the summer, this was meant to, this was a summer blockbuster. It was one of the first ones that was released uh, in the summer. They wanted to make sure that it would be out on D, uh, DVD, Blu-ray, excuse me, VHS for October 19th. So it was very important that we open this film, uh, you know, in August. It was, it was actually August 5th. Let's open this film in August and we'll make sure, wink, wink, we're going to have this on video by October because that's how you do it. I mean, come on, you know, we could go into all the nonsense. There's really not a lot left. I mean, I'm giving you the broad strokes here. If you want to get involved with all the the nonsense and the ins and outs of the Lord of the Dead, which was another treatment that was written after the curse of Michael Myers. And that story would have opened immediately after the events of the previous film. And that would have been the Paul Rudd, Tommy Doyle, discovering the entire town of Haddonfield has been involved with a conspiracy and then he wants to go back and right the wrongs. That film would have just carried over the characters from Curse of Michael Myers. Interestingly enough, Paul Rudd invited to come back for this new Halloween Kills. Unfortunately, he was filming Ghostbusters. What kind of crazy world do we live in? <laughs> like, there's, there's like, okay, first off, I'm a big Paul Rudd guy. I love Wet Hot American Summer. I'm just a big Paul Rudd fan, okay? I'll watch any and all of his romantic comedies. I don't care how crappy or cheesy or silly. I'm a total mark for Paul Rudd. And I think it's crazy and kind of somewhat warms my my ice-cold heart that (laughs) Paul Rudd turned down Halloween Kills to make Ghostbusters Afterlife, which is coming later this year, supposedly. I don't want to jinx it. It It got shown at a... CinemaCon uh, in Vegas this year, people went nuts for it. It was one of the surprise screenings. Everything's been really positive about this new Ghostbusters film. It's Jason Reitman, and I love Jason Reitman, and uh, he's got a lot to prove with this film because people think like, oh, he's making another Ghostbusters. No, this is his family's legacy. It's, it's a little bit different when like you're, it's like you're defending the honor not only of this franchise but of your father's legacy. I don't think he'll screw it up. I've, I've got, knock on wood, some good faith in this uh, Ghostbusters afterlife. Speaking of which, before that happens in November of our year of the Lord 2021, we're getting Halloween Kills. Halloween 2018, Halloween Kills is the sequel, just in case you're keeping score out there, folks, would technically be H4O. Yeah, hindsight being 2020, there's a lot of things that they course corrected in this new Halloween. There's things that people don't like about that movie, okay? And I could cite some, but it's kind of spoilery if I do, and I don't want to get involved with spoilers for another film that we're not covering. Largely, I would say about 85%, 90% of Halloween 2018 is totally solid, except for that doctor character. But that's all I'll say. That was a MacGuffin that just didn't work. David Gordon Green, I'm on to you. Watching you and your pal Danny McBride, keeping a, a firm eye on you guys. So yeah, this movie worked out pretty well. It is what it is. It's one thing I will say about this film. It goes into that whole thing, and I'm a part of this movement, guys. Get a part of the movement. The 90-minute movie. Let's bring it back, folks. This movie is 86 minutes, and I have to say, for, for what it does, it works. Gets to the point, and I told you. Like one third of that is just the Laurie Michael Myers stuff, which is for rightfully so what it should be. Now, because nothing can ever be left alone, especially something that makes money. 
So Mustafa Akkad can't kill Michael Myers, the golden goose, blah, 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 blah. The next day, after the film had wrapped, a clandestine meeting had been put in place between the Weinsteins and Akkad. They're going to shoot an extra scene. And that extra scene would be what goes into the next film, Halloween Resurrection, rightfully undoing the awesome finish of this movie because they had already, they knew that there was this was going to be a hit. They knew once they had Jamie Lee that this film was going to work. So they shot this additional scene, which is actually, you can see at the beginning of Halloween Resurrection, showing that Michael Myers had switched the body which none of this stuff works. Like Michael Myers got buck naked, got the other guy buck naked, put him in the coveralls. Like, there's just not enough time for that to happen, but whatever, I get it. So secretly the Weinsteins and Akkad shoot this, this scene and they must've thought they were slick willies. And they kind of were because Jamie Lee did not know that the scene was shot. Steve Miner knew, but it was all second unit stuff. So he really was like, okay, well, I'm not, this is not my project. You guys are just going to use this for the next movie. So whatever. Folks. <laughs> now, look, okay. This movie, I understand. A lot of you grew up with this movie. If you had just seen Scream, this was definitely a part of it. The I Know What You Did Last Summer, Urban Legends. This is, we are hitting that stride of you have wet the appetite with Scream. And now you've created a whole new generation of horror-hungry fans. So this is like, hey, let's bring back the OG. I think where this film suffers, and this is my personal opinion, aside from all the stuff, aside from the score, aside from the crappy mask, where this film suffers is that I think Kevin Williamson needed to write this movie. Because at the end of the day, what is written here largely by Robert Zappia and Matt Greenberg is a facsimile of what would Kevin Williamson do. And that's fine. Like it is what it is. Like I get it. Adam Arkin is a very strong part of this. Michelle Williams. She's always good. She's, and it's, it's good to see her here cause she's cute, but it's crazy. Like you've got the same editor who goes on to make Dracula 2000. Gerard Butler. Woof. That's a bad movie. Also made by the Weinsteins. We'll get to that at some point. That's 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 definitely worst of the month. Like totally. Patrick Lussier. He uh he cut all of Craven's movies. He did all those scream movies. He's a fantastic editor. The guy he knows his shit. That kind of just added to it. As much as they could, they tried to make this a scream film. We're very much in the vein or mold. And a lot of it being most of the same people working on this. Ultimately made $75 million. Believe it or not, set records on VHS. This was a big VHS burner because this movie had come out August 5th. And now like we have these crazy release date windows where like Quiet Place 2 came out and it was 45 days from the theater. This is very accelerated to have a film that's theatrically out August 5th in 1998 plays and then is on DVD and VHS, Jesus, not even three months later, not even like maybe two and two, two months and a week. And that was incredibly fast. This film did very well. It was one of the highest selling VHS films of that year. And you have to think there was a a lot going on. Is this okay? Like, how am I rating this film? Because I feel like it's important that I give you some kind of conclusion I don't know. I'm going to say, ooh, 4.5 out of 10. And that's being generous. A lot of you, like I said, you grew up with this stuff. And if you were at that correct age with Scream, and I know what you did last summer, it's kind of a part of that whole movement. And you're going to look back at it very fondly. And I do too. You know, I was a young person. I was, I was a young person once too. I was in the theater and seeing this was so exciting because they positioned this film as kind of a a low key summer blockbuster, which you really had never gotten a Halloween film that came out in the middle of summer. 
So they positioned it that way. It was cool. It was cool getting to see this in a theater. But that finish, like nothing, <laughs> nothing can ever take away the power of seeing that for the very first time. Spoiler alert, just in case we didn't do that like 10 years ago. When you cut off Michael Myers' head and you followed these films, you'd followed the previous six films, and you had been through all this stuff with this character, it's remarkable. And nothing can take away from that because in a world where horror sequels... And, and the other thing, too, is she cuts the head off, that head rolls off, and boom, we just go right to black and bring the credits up. You know, bring, bring the theme song up. Like, that's tight. That's like finality. And you don't get finality in most horror films. Most of the films that I watched, they had been done with that model, whether it was Freddy appearing in the wishing well at the end of A Nightmare on Elm Street 4, uh, Dream Master. There was always a hook at the end. There was always, you know, even like I told you with I Know What You Did Last Summer, that's that was another movie that just pissed me off because of that ending. Like, I know that they wanted to put a hook on it, but it didn't even make any sense. It even just gets written off in the next film, which they generally do. But I think that, I think you can leave a door open. You can definitely leave a door open and give a nod. Hey, there maybe there, wait a second, maybe you could get out of that. But there is something to be said for giving fans what they want. And I don't know if it was what they wanted, but God damn, was it cool to see Michael Myers' head get cut off. You know, again... You can armchair quarterback this stuff years later and say, well, you know, they should. It was exciting. It was it was an exciting place. It was an exciting time. So, again, even if you're watching this with the nostalgia glasses, uh, go back with my nostalgia glasses. So if I had to give nostalgia, I would say it would be a six out of ten, but it's not. It's a four point five out of ten. And that's all there is to it, kids. Hey, look, don't forget, we're on YouTube. You can listen to these episodes on YouTube. Don't forget, you can also leave, uh, like the folks that I read today, you can leave a review, and I'll read it, if it's good. I mean, even if it's bad. But don't get crazy out there with that bad review thing, like, oh, Jerry's good, because at a certain point, I won't read them. But yeah, try and leave a you know something positive. Jesus Christ, there's enough terror in the world, let alone all the stuff going on today. I'm also on social media. It's at Jerry Hara. Everywhere you go, you go to the TikTok, you go to the Instagram, the Twitter. I'm there. I'm waiting. I'm the phantom of the fucking internet. I just edited myself. I'm the phantom of the MF internet. AF, as the kids would say. So I hope that you've enjoyed this edition of The Offering. We've got a lot of new and exciting things to show you in the months ahead. Please stay tuned. Hey, have you checked out the merch on redbubble.com? You should do that. It's pretty red. And look, hey, I'm just saying, this is the beginning of the offering, okay? This is the time to jump in because if you've got the OG t-shirt and you've got like the hoodie and stuff like that, you're like, oh, I've been down since day one. And you can smarten up to all your horror fans to say, hey, we demand more. And by more, we mean Jerry Hara. Ladies and gentlemen, and friends beyond the binary, this has been The Offering. Have a wonderful evening, or day. I don't know where you are. What, I'm supposed to be psychic now? Thanks again for listening to The Offering, where it's mostly horror, but always genre. Be well, my friends. You've been listening to The Offering with Jerry Hara. I'm very sorry. Produced by Pete Bune. If you have a question or a story you want to share with me, we'd love to hear from you. You can email me at jerryhara at gmail.com or hit us up at Twitter at jerryhara or on Instagram at jerryhara. You get in the picture? Subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever fine podcasts are provided for you and your family. I want you to enjoy. Just join us next time for another offer. I'm Tom. My partner Mike and I have been friends and co-workers for a long time. And at work, we're known for our daily water cooler conversations about TV shows and movies we are currently watching. 
Whether we're arguing over which Marvel TV show is the best or agreeing about which Netflix original movie is the worst, the pop culture conversation is always popping on Two Brothers at a Water Cooler. You can listen to Two Brothers at a Water Cooler on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are available. Subscribe and share today. This has been a Sick Boy Wolfgang production. Thank you for listening.